Good evening. I'm Gadi Levy, Executive Director of the Temple Emanuel Stryker Cultural Center, and I'm excited to welcome you to the opening of our winter-spring 2024 semester. Tonight, we celebrate a new play, the musicians who inspired it and the composer who wrote the music. As you're about to hear, the comedian harmonist were a true German sensation in the 1920s who sold millions of records and packed concert halls until they were banned by the Nazis because three of the group members were Jewish. It seems entirely appropriate that the play about them, Harmony, is animated by the music of Barry Pinchas, who longed to write Broadway musicals, but he got sidelined as the pop singer Barry Manilow. We will begin with a conversation between him and Bruce Sussman, who wrote the book and the lyrics, moderated by Lani Firestone, interviewer, educator, and writer. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Harmony. Hi, welcome everyone. I want to start by saying how it's always special to have Jewish stories on Broadway stages and over the past few months, it's been even more special and more meaningful to see stories of triumph, pain, humanity about Jewish characters, and in so many cases in this production, played by Jewish actors. So thank you for writing this play, this musical. Thank you for bringing it to audiences. <laughs> Barry, I want to start back in an auspicious year, 1943. In 1943, the musical Oklahoma opened on Broadway. And the same year, the second most popular song on the Billboard charts was Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. Right. In 1949, South Pacific opened on Broadway, top of the charts, Some Enchanted Evening. It was a time of great transferability of musical theater music and pop music. As you were gaining success and building your craft as a songwriter and singer of popular music, you also had the aspiration of writing for the stage. As you began to compose for harmony, did you distinguish what made a great musical theater song as being similar or different from the kind of music that you had been so accustomed to writing in the popular genre? You know, I never listened to the pop radio. Isn't that funny? And I wound up on the pop radio for a long time. But I only listened to classical music, jazz, and Broadway scores. I could sing you the scores to so many of the great Broadway musicals. I was soaking in Broadway musicals. That's what I thought I would wind up doing with my life. If I was lucky, I would write a Broadway musical uh, and go from one to the next to the next. But um, Mandy hit and ruined everything. That's, that's really what happened. I never, never thought about pop music. It was always going to be either jazz or Broadway stuff. When you think about the songs that have transferred from the musical genre to the radio songs. Yeah, but that doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't. It that doesn't. That happened back then. That's true. That, those songs became 
the songs of the day. Exactly. Uh, until the Beatles happened. Exactly. And, and everything changed beautifully, but that stopped the Broadway musical from being on the radio. You know, Barry and I met to write for the stage. And he's right. When Mandy happened, it was a detour. It just we took us completely somewhere else. And then I tried to get Bruce to write pop songs, and he didn't know what I was talking about. I mean, if, if, if I don't have a scene and a character, you know, I, there has to be some. The page is too blank. Now, Bruce, he didn't do it consistently, but when Bruce did it, he did it big. He did Copacabana. <laughs> which, which is a very strange pop song. First of all, it's a song that ends with the line, don't fall in love. <laughs> I mean, it's a very weird pop song. Yeah, and it's a brilliant lyric. I mean, you know, people think it's just a novelty song, but really, if you t take a look at this lyric, it's a full story in three verses and a repetitive chorus. And you get to know three characters, their problem, and, and the ending. I mean, it's a brilliant lyric. Yeah, I got a... It is. I mean, yeah, there's a catchy melody, and I, I, I made a great record with my collaborators, but really, it's all about that lyric. And, 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 and as long as we're flattering each other, it was your idea. Uh, I came up with the title, as this back and forth that we always have. We were on vacation in Rio de Janeiro. My first, this is my first nervous breakdown. And, and, and every, we were staying at the Copacabana Palace Hotel on Copacabana Beach, eating at the Copacabana restaurant, <laughs> getting our clothes cleaned at the Copacabana dry cleaners. <laughs> Everything was Copacabana. And I said to him, that's such a great word. And I said, I think except for... An obscure grouch in a Marx Brothers movie where Carmen Miranda sings a song titled Copacabana. I said, I don't think it's ever been used. And he said, what is it about? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> we get back to the States. A couple of months later, he says, remember that idea you had about Copacabana? I said, yeah. He said, what if it were the kind of story song they don't write anymore? What if it were a Frankie and Johnny story? I said, I'll call you back. And then I said, and then I said, Make sure somebody dies. Yes. He said, he, said, he said, make sure somebody dies. I said, I'm your man. Uh, and and we, we read the lyric to you in rhythm, if I remember. You did. I, anybody could have written a good melody with that lyric. He, you no, know, really. He, he, they read me. Her name was Lola. She was a showgirl. Uh, well, anybody could have written a good... I mean, really... But it really does operate like a play, yeah, that and, song. And, and we turned it into a musical. Yeah. And it's, it shows like the seeds were there of the kind of longer form storytelling that you're now doing here. But there is a great difference between pop writing and, and writing for the stage, uh, largely for what we said. But in, in pop songs, as you always say, there are like three things you can write about. Right. I love you or I miss you. And that's it. If you go any further than that, the record labels and the radio will say, you know, that's a Broadway song or a film song. It's not a pop song. You put chains on us if you're going to yeah. write, if you're going to try to write a, a pop song. And you can't do that with Bruce. That's writing for the stage as opposed to writing for pop music. This is a window into your process, Bruce. Yeah. So the show Harmony is a narrative that works in two directions. We have the forward-moving story of the group, and we have the memory play of Rabbi, played by the excellent Chip Zion. The inclusion of Rabbi's character, in a way, is a spoiler, but it's revealed so early on, mm -hmm. which is that Rabbi lives. 
We know instantly he survives World War II and lives to tell this story. How do you think about the memory aspect of it? And what did you unlock in storytelling by having a main character tell a story retrospectively? We agonized about this. So this was, as you probably know, this happened during the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, Harmony did not have that character played by Chip Zion. It had a character named Rabbi who was a young man, and we find out at the very end of the play, he's a young man telling this story, but he's actually 87 years old. We started making adjustments, and we thought we'd pretty much had our draft of what, what, how, what the rewrite was going to be. And then in the intervening days, I had this idea, what if we added an older rabbi who could confront his younger self about his inaction? An older idea, I must say. Well, we'll get to that in a minute, yeah. Uh, and in addition to that, he would also play numerous characters. So I wrote two drafts. I wrote one with the older guy and one without the older guy, and I presented it to Barry and Warren, and we debated it for weeks, and we decided, what the heck, let's go for it. So we did. But as Barry said, this was actually a revived old idea. My very first draft of Harmony in 1862 <laughs> had two rabbis, and we wrote it for, do you remember who we wrote it for? Yeah, for Victor Borger. We voted for Victor Borger. You folks know who Victor Borger was? If you don't know who Victor Borger was, go to YouTube and Victor Borger, B-O-R-G-E, and just sit back and feast. This was, I'm fond of saying the comedian harmonist found low comedy and high art. And that's what Victor Borger did. He was a brilliant pianist. As it turns out, he performed on the same bill as the comedian harmonist in Copenhagen. But that's a side story. So we wrote it for him, and we imagined that Victor Borger would be the older rabbi. And then I think it was by the second draft, we abandoned it. And we went with the younger guy. So I took this old idea from 1862 and turned it into a new idea by adding the fact that he would play all these other characters. Barry, I've heard that you had actor training, and you've said that it, in a way, saved you as a performer. It gave you a kind of command of the stage to find a performance style. As you began composing for professional actors, did you, and if so, how, draw on some of that actor mindset of how professional actors would sing your songs on stage in character. Mm. I, I, I did the demos for all the songs that we wrote. Every song that we wrote, I did a demo, and I knew his voice. I knew exactly how to sing these songs that both of us wrote. Uh, and if you listen to these old demos, you would understand what the song uh, needs to be, what, what it does. Yes, my acting classes helped, but really it was Bruce and I I know his writing. I know the melodies. As I read the lyrics, I know exactly what he's hearing. And I think he feels the same way about me. No, it's true. I have, uh, and I can get good money for this on eBay, I have Barry, a, a recording of Barry singing Marlena Dietrich. Yeah, and, and I was pretty good at that, too. You were, you were great. <laughs> you, were, you, were you should good. put those demos on Spotify. <laughs> we did an animated uh, film for Don Bluth, Barbara Cook was in it, and Carol Channing was in it. And Carol Channing sang a song titled, believe it or not, Marry the Mole. And it's an animated film. And you sang Carol Channing's... I did. Doing, doing Carol Channing. And how about Charo's song? Yeah. I did that one, too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yes, we do that all the time. When we think about people living peacefully together, especially people of different backgrounds... 
we might describe that experience as being harmonious. Mm -hmm. As we know, harmony relies on difference. It can't exist without it, otherwise it's monotone. But what's beautiful in music is quite daunting in real life. And we're inclined to seek a kind of sameness in our social surroundings, so much so that we might actively go against being in close proximity to those who live quite differently or believe quite differently. In the show, we see a group of six men who are quite different religiously, politically, economically. How, in your view, historically and in the show, do they blend together so well? Do you think that music is the ingredient, the singular ingredient for them? You know, one of the things I'm proudest of about harmony is the fact that the score doesn't sound the same. Uh, each song is totally different than the song before it, and that was because each song was done for the character. And uh, when I listen to the score, I'm really proud of it because it's so diverse. And then, of course, it's uh, a nervous breakdown at the end of it. That was one of my proudest things that I've ever have to, had to do because there's that one is not a melodic piece. Uh, it was the, probably the only one I've ever written anything like that. I think harmony was the launch, uh, musical harmony was the launching pad for their closeness. I don't think these six guys who had they met in any other circumstance would have been friends. But harmony, musical harmony, allowed them to be. And then, as they say themselves in their interviews, the very real comedian harmonists, we were harmonious in every way. That started with music, and then it's about tolerance. I'm fascinated. Uh, one of the characters in the play, uh, we call him Lesh. His name in life was Ari Leshnikov. He was a Bulgarian. And Ari was perhaps the strongest ally of the uh, three Jewish members of the group. And I never, when I started doing my research, I wasn't fully understanding why. And then, lo and behold, I don't mean to name drop, but Bill Clinton explained it to me. He dedicated the Holocaust Museum in Washington. And he said, you've got to come here. There's so much you will learn. I learned today of the heroism of the Bulgarian people who, when the Nazis took over their country, said, you cannot have our Jews. And the Nazis said, well, get out of our way. We're going to take them. And the Bulgarians went on strike and the toll bridges didn't run, and the ferries didn't run, and the trains didn't run, and the trucks didn't run, and they refused to give them their Jews, and the Nazis said, well, screw this, and they moved on to Greece. And the Bulgarians... Bulgaria is the only country in Europe that ended the war with more Jews than they had before the war began. They, the Jewish population in Bulgaria was tiny. It was 50,000 at the beginning of the war, and it was 57,000 at the end of the war. That's why there's something cultural. It's, as Rogers and Hammerstein wrote in, in uh, South Pacific, you have to be carefully taught. There was something cultural in the fabric of Bulgarian society that said, this is wrong, you cannot do it, and we will not tolerate it. That was my window into who this character was, and it's the last lines he has in the play. We saved them, Rabbi, every Jewish person in Bulgaria. So, well, by way of saying that I don't think they could have gotten that far to know this about Lesh unless music had given them the window to find out who he was and 
how he could be an ally like that. They had their squabbles, but I think these six men found a closeness. As Rabbi says at the top of the play, I don't think human beings can get any closer. It was a pursuit of harmony in every sense of the word, including the two interfaith couples. Mm-hmm. There's a great line of wordplay in the opening song, Harmony. In this joint, mm-hmm. all encounters with counterpoint end in harmony, mm-hmm. which to my ear means whenever there might be a moment of discord, metaphorically and literally, they're able to resolve it. Is that how you intended it? Precisely. It's one of my favorite lines (laughs) in the the show. Before we bring out our cast, Barry, could you say a few more words about the kinds of melodic and harmonic ideas you wove in to create the sound of the group, including some of those moments of dissonance where the musical tension mirrors the tension that we're seeing dramatically. The score is a melodic score. And what I'm proudest of, like I said, each song is different than the song before. Come to the Fatherland is a vaudeville piece. Every single day is a big ballad. And they don't sound alike. A lot of composers, you can tell from the very first song, that's the style of their, of their writing. I didn't do that because you got six guys and I wanted to give each one of them, their own sound. But of course, at the end, and somewhere at the end of Act One, since Rabbi is really having a bad time, I couldn't give him melodies. That didn't make any sense. I had to go atonal, and that's not my thing. And uh, I'm very happy with what we finally wound up with, but you know, Bruce helped with giving me these unbelievable words. When I hear it now, it still thrills me. The whole score, I'm very proud of the whole score. And the album sounds pretty damn good, too. Not to bore people with this mutual admiration society, but here's something about Barry that never fails to impress me. You can ask him to write anything, and he can. The group was famous for taking classical pieces and imitating the sounds of musical instruments. They used to, when they did a full evening and they had an intermission, they would come back from the second act and the lights would be out, and they would, you would hear what you think is a chamber orchestra playing the overture to, to a Sainte's Barber of Seville, and the lights slowly come up, and you realize it's six guys imitating the sounds of musical instruments. So I said to Barry, we've got to do one of those. And he said, well, what are we going to do? I'll show you what a nerd I am. I said, uh, well, Liszt wrote 19 Hungarian Rhapsodies, and they're virtuosic. Why don't we write number 20? <laughs> He went out and got the 19 Hungarian Rhapsodies and listened to them, and we wrote number 20. I mean, just ask him to say, uh, let's write a big band piece, fine. Let's do something atonal, fine. He he just is always able, it's the most virtuosic talent I've ever encountered. Well, let's bring out the cast. I want to ask your thoughts, and please, Barry and Bruce, join in, around the way time works in musicals. Some songs speed up time. Some songs slow down time. The first and last that you performed, which coincidentally are the first and last of the musical, do each of those respectively. Harmony creates a great amount of exposition. Years are passing. We meet every character at once. Whereas Stars in the Night is a moment of stillness. In a show that is about memory, why do you think it's important that the opening number moves quickly through time and the final number freezes time? 
Fantastic question, if I may say. And I think it's uh, in microcosm a little bit of uh, describes our first act and our second act, which one is full of joy, is full of life, is full of that kind of time is moving, things are exciting, things are, are happening. And in the second act, things slow down a little bit as reality sort of hits the group. And I think the end of the show, that last song, that stillness provides an opportunity for reflection upon uh, these men and the world at that time and the world now. Agreed. I'm going to add to that. <laughs> I will also add, from, just from a technical perspective, at the beginning of the show, you don't know any of these people. And there's six people you have to learn a lot about and learn to care about so much. And in the end, you've gone on such a journey with these six men and the women as well, and you now get a chance to really absorb the tragedy of what's happened to them and these people you've learned about over these last two and a half-ish hours. Um, so I think it's a really, the stillness is, is wonderful and beautiful. I just thought we slowed down at the end because we were so tired. <laughs> I'd love to talk about the two middle songs, Every Single Day and Where You Go, as being comparable to Copacabana, which is a song that is itself a play. In other words, where the characters begin is different than where they end. It's, this is not a song where we have quick exposition, and it's not a song where we have frozen time. There's actually narrative happening in the song. Can you talk us through where you are emotionally at the start and end of those respective songs? So, as Bruce set up in Every Single Day, Mary is unsure. That's, that's the woman who I'm proposing to, the love of my life, of what a, a future together would be like. And I think for Rabbi himself, it's really the first moment where he's maybe shown this sense of strength to her. I think it takes a lot of tenacity to leave your home country, which he did. He left Poland during the time of the pogroms. But this is really the first moment where I think he really steps into his, his manhood, per se. And like for me, Danny, like... This has been such a wonderful journey to like get to feel like I'm, I finally become a man on stage. So every night I, I transition from what we're seeing in the very opening number of these youthful boys. And in this moment of professing my love, it's like, oh, I am entering my adult self here. And from the start to the end, it's really that profession of love. And I think ultimately, if you see the show, you'll find out whether or not she uh, ends up saying yes, she does, um, <laughs> but still see the show. Um, and so it's, it's really, this song is one of the greatest love anthems, I think, that's ever been written for the Broadway stage. And, and, and that's the difference between a pop song and a theater song. How about you t uh, where you go? And where you go? Well, yeah. for me, the last line I have before I sing is... Uh, I say to my husband, Chopin, his nickname is Chopin, he's not the Chopin, but um, he's saying, well, we just fight all the time. And I say, well, why do we fight? Because you married a Jew in this lousy Jew-hating country and you won't stand up to them. And then uh, I'm quiet for all of Mary's verse. But when I turn back around and sing, I mean, I, I have that whole verse to, by the way, this song, Where You Go, is based on Chopin's prelude in E minor. So... When I sing to Chopin, I'm literally singing music to him that would be very meaningful to this character, and I have to sing it to him because 
because, am I right? Did I make that up? <laughs> I think it's right. So I'm singing to him because it's the only way he understands through music. And I experience very much as a character in that pause where I'm not singing the great despair and loneliness that it is to be a Jew in this time period. And to be a Jew who isn't particularly religious, but she, I think, feels just desperately abandoned by her non-Jewish spouse and feels complete despair and anger. And so by the end of the song, I've made the decision that I can no longer be with somebody who is going to leave me in the dark like this. And I choose to stand alone because I would rather be alone and stand with my principles than with someone who has none. There's a line that I've heard from composer Janine Tesori, who has composed many shows for the Broadway stage, in which he says that people can be intimidated by the language of music when they don't have a strong music background, but that everyone has ownership of music. And ideally, there should be no distance between composer and audience. And I think about that when I hear something like Stars in the Night, where I can't even begin to parse, let alone reproduce, the sounds I'm hearing. And I wonder how that technical element works for you as singers. Is there a point at this stage in the run where you can let go of the technicality and just be in the emotion so it matches what the audience is feeling? Did you have a, like a tipping point where the technical side gives way? You know, Bruce and I have worked for so long. I know exact. I knew exactly where the song was going to wind up, and I did a really full demo, and I sang the lines that she gave me. But by the end, I was actually weeping because I knew what he was going to do with this melody. I just knew that he was going to write this beautiful lyric, and you did. So, so. The thing about Stars in the Night is that it's a beautiful song. And by the time you've gotten to the end of our musical, you, you were talking about how there might be a distance if you don't understand music or know music or comprehend lyrics. By the end of the show, we're all in it together. Like, as, as we stand on there on stage, it really does feel like that audience of the Barrymore is one unit. And when you have this beautiful soaring melody and words like, are we fools to see the hope that's gleaming in the skies? Everyone can relate to that. It's just a beautiful song. So I think that if a composer and a lyricist does their job correctly, by the end of a musical, there's no barrier between the stage or professional actors. It's all just one unit in harmony. My last question is about the idea of legacy, namely what we leave behind of our work and accomplishments and relationships and these six singers, as prolific as they were, largely lost to history until two explorers found them. And for people who create, who make their lives creating, there's a yearning to know that what you are working toward will have a lasting result, will live on, will be received. What do you think this musical conveys about making a contribution to the world that lasts. I think our show, like, 
I think it works on two levels. You know, we learned this wonderful story about the six guys in our show. They're really fantastic. But we also, it's something of a cautionary tale. I mean, what the Harmonists witnessed was the transition from a republic to one of the worst tragedies in human history. And they were there. So it's about these guys, but it's also about this horrible moment in history. And uh, one that we all know about now. One of the things that uh, we, we had an advisor when we were rehearsing the show, and he had a quote that I loved, which was, for our Jewish community at that time in Germany, there was too much hope and not enough fear. That kind of resonates at this moment in time, too. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a cautionary tale how hard it is to maintain our democracies, basically. I, I think... I to go off of that in terms of legacy, I think what this show proves is that even in the darkest of times, if you surround yourself with beautiful people and beautiful connection, you will always find lightness. And that's what I continue to take away as I grow into my adult life in New York City. My chosen family is the thing that keeps me afloat. And I trust that no matter what times are ahead, if I have relationships like I do with these six guys and my friends, like no matter what comes, things will always be okay. I'd also say on, a, on kind of a meta level, this show proves that creating beautiful art as these men did, you never know who you're going to inspire or when. The Nazi regime did everything they could to wipe out the legacy of these men. And here we are in a Broadway musical about them. You never know. They changed our lives from so many years ago. We, so, we the six of us, well, five of us making our Broadway debuts, except Sal. But we all owe so much to these men who we never met, who we do not know personally. But because of the beauty they created, we get to spread even more and share that message. I think Barry and I had the same. I think we spoke with one voice when we wrote this piece, we just wanted people to learn who these six extraordinary guys yeah, and were. And not forget them. And not forget them. We felt they deserved to be remembered. Julie's show before this was Funny Girl. As a teenager, I went to see Funny Girl. I didn't know who Fanny Bryce was. I learned about it from this Broadway musical. Julie Stein and, and Bob Merrill taught me who Fanny Bryce was. I'm hoping that people come to see our show and leave knowing who these comedian harmonists were because they should be remembered. And... Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Places Everyone on iTunes or Spotify. And follow me, Lonnie Firestone, on Instagram. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time. 